Welcome to the Cross Point Church Sermons. This sermon was preached by Pastor Scott Kappelman during a Sunday worship service. We hope you enjoy and share the message. I think you would agree with me. Our uh, worship team has been doing an outstanding job uh, every Sunday leading us in worship. And when Tyson left, uh, early this year, I was not sure exactly how things would go, but our group has just done a fantastic job week to week. And uh, would you just give them a big round of applause? Thank you for leading us every Sunday. It is such an encouragement to come um, after busy weeks and just gather with God's people and hear God's people sing his praises and just have the chance to worship as the body of Christ. And I appreciate all of you leading us from week to week. Let's go to the book of Jude. It's the book right before you find the book of Revelation. So if you're not sure exactly where Jude is found, just go to the end of the New Testament, back up one particular book, and you'll find the book of Jude. It's my first time to preach through the book of Jude. I think I've done a Bible study uh, in a college setting using the book of Jude in the past, but this is my first time to preach through the book of Jude. And today we're going to go to the second part of this study, which is going to cover Jude verse 5 down through verse 11. Now, before we dive into the particular text that we're going to study today, I need to put three pieces of a puzzle together, because I think for us to really understand this particular section in the book of Jude, you've got to have three pieces of a puzzle to make it make sense. The first piece is you've got to keep in mind that Jude is going to use a lot of Old Testament references. What we often forget when we're reading the New Testament is that they did not have a copy of the New Testament like we have it. They didn't have that. They just basically had the Old Testament as a reference point. And that's why so much of what we read in the New Testament is based on what we have found in the Old Testament. And so for those of you who are new believers in Jesus Christ, if you've not spent much time reading the Bible, most of the time as a new believer, we encourage you to read the New Testament, to read the Gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I do want you to understand the Old Testament is very significant because those New Testament believers and the New Testament writers that we find in the New Testament, they were basing what they were writing and teaching off of the Old Testament. And you're going to see that in verses 5 through 11 today. Jude is going to rely heavily on the Old Testament to make his points because that's the bridge for him so that he can communicate what he wants to say. Now, in addition, I just want to kind of go one step further with this Old Testament to New Testament concept and let you also know up front that Jude is one of the few books in the New Testament that actually has some quotes from extra biblical material. Now, I'm gonna, not going to get into that a whole lot, but keep in mind that, that our Bible, as we have it today, was not put together until the 300s A.D. That's when the canon was brought together. There were some stipulations. A council was held, and at the council, they outlined three main things that would make something worthy to be considered to be put into the Bible itself. But at the point we're talking about, when we read the book of Jude, that has not been done. So there were other biblical sources that were out there. There were other Old Testament sources. And Jude, one of the problems as to why it almost did not get put into our Bible is because he quotes from two different books that are not in the Scripture. 
So I wanted you to just kind of have this as a frame of reference. They did not have a canon. They did not have a Bible like we have. They had the Old Testament stories, and they had some other material that had been written that also kind of gave commentary on the Old Testament and some events that took place in the Old Testament. We're going to see all of that come out in verses 5 through 11. The second thing you need to know about this section that we're going to study today, and it carries over through the rest of this letter called Jude, is he's going to emphasize three things at a time. He's going to have triads. One, two, three. You're going to see that over and over. So, for example, if I were writing a book today using Jude's methodology of one, two, three, if I were describing the distinct people groups on the earth, then I could use the first one, I could say, you've got lost people and rescued people. That would be my first description of the peoples of the earth that are living currently, is you've got lost people and rescued people, people who do not know Jesus Christ and those who have been rescued by His death on the cross, His burial, and His resurrection. Or I could use a second illustration, you've got outsiders and insiders, Outsiders and insiders, those outside the church who do not believe in Jesus, those who have believed in Jesus and who are inside the church, who are inside the kingdom of God. And then the third description I could use to talk about the people of the earth is you've got the unrighteous and the righteous, the unrighteous and the righteous. The unrighteous are those who are still living in sin. The righteous are those who have discovered Jesus Christ and they have given their lives to him and now they have received his righteousness. So if I were writing like Jude, those are the three ways that I would describe the same thing. And you're going to find that Jude does that over and over and over from verse five to the end of the book. He's going to use triads, three things to say the same point, to make his point be very clear to those who are reading the message. And then the third piece of the puzzle that we need to put together this morning would be, we've got to talk a little bit about God's judgment because that begins to crop up in the verses that we're going to study today. Now, if we talk about God's judgments and you look at it from a biblical perspective, there are a number of judgments that God is going to execute over time. He's going to judge the Jews. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge uh, Satan and his angels. We're not going to deal with those today. What I want to focus on, though, are two in particular that bring us to the book of Revelation. He's going to judge the works of people, and he's going to have us come before the great white throne. Those are the two that I just want to focus on real quickly. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Revelation, and let's go together to Revelation chapter 20, and I want you to see how this works. These two of the many judgments that are re referenced in the Bible, I want to just show you these two in particular. Now, when we pick up, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne, that's a key phrase, a great white throne, and one seated on it. That would be the Ancient of Days. That would be God Himself. He's going to be sitting on the great white throne. Earth and heaven fled from His presence, and no place was found for them. That means when God's judgment begins, there is no place on the earth that anyone can hide. Sometimes we can hide from people. We can maybe hide our sin, but when it comes to God's judgment, everything's going to be laid bare, and that's why that reference is used. Earth and heaven have fled from His presence, and no place was found for them. Then verse 12, I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books. Do you notice the plural form of that? Books. B-O-O-K-S. 
you've got a book that's being written about your life and the way you've lived. I've got my own book. Everybody in this room has a book that represents the things that you've done while you've lived on this earth. It is your book. That's why it's plural. It's not a single book. Everybody in the room has a book. And all of your deeds, your words, your actions, your kindnesses, or your mean-spiritedness is in your book. And your book will be read before God. The books, plural. Now, why is God going to have us read the book or He's going to read the book of our life? Because when we actually have Him read that book, we're going to finally realize, if we don't realize it while we're living on this earth, we're going to finally realize how unworthy we really are to stand in His presence. We're going to realize that we thought we were pretty moral, good, upstanding people, and we were rotten, scandalous, no good people. We're going to stand before God and He's going to show us that there was no way in our own power and strength we could ever enter into His presence because our book will show the gravity of our sin. If you've not thought about this recently, let me encourage you to give some serious thought to the fact that you and I will stand before God and our book will be read and we're going to be found sinners worthy of death and eternal wrath from the Heavenly Father who is holy and righteous. The books. Our works will never measure up. I appreciate Amsie this morning sharing his testimony of how there was a season in his life where he was actually taught by his faith that if you just do the right things and you have the good works, you'll be good in God's standing. That is a false notion that is antithetical to Scripture. It just doesn't work that way. Our books will prove that. Now let's keep reading in verse 12. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then it says another, this is separate, Another book, singular, it does not have an S, it's just B-O-O-K. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Our book's going to show we're not worthy to stand before God. And so we're going to be judged by those works. Now, how is the, what's the key there? What, what's the only way for us to get into heaven? Well, we keep reading verse 13. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to what? Their works that don't measure up. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, verse 14. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then here it is. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book, singular, of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The only... The only hope any of us have that day when God's judgment comes is that our name is in the book. That means we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We realized our works were not going to get us into heaven. We realized our sinfulness deserved the wrath of God, but we found that Jesus died for us. Someone introduced us to the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel, that we were headed toward an eternity under God's wrath because of our sin and no works would ever rescue us 
and somebody told us about Jesus, the one who died for us, who gave his life, sacrificed himself, took our punishment, was buried, resurrected on the third day. And if we just trusted him by faith, that's what Amesy talked about a minute ago. If we just trust him by faith, we can have our name written in the book of life so that when it's time for judgment, God looks in there and goes, oh, I see Scott Kappelman trusted Jesus when he was seven so although he deserves wrath and punishment and eternal separation from me, he trusted Jesus and Jesus's righteousness is going to allow him to come and join me in my eternal kingdom. And it's our name being written in the book of life that gives us the hope to stand before God as we're being judged. And so I want to just, before we go any further into Jude, just like challenge you to consider today whether you've trusted Jesus. Because if you haven't, when your book is read, it's not going to be pretty. And you will be judged and found unworthy. And you'll miss eternity with the Heavenly Father. So this is God's judgment. All of this comes into play. Going back to the three pieces, He's using the Old Testament. He's going to repeat things three times. And He's going to talk about the judgment of God. So with that in mind, let's go now to Jude. And let's pick up in verse 5. Verse 5. Here's what it says. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things. Now if you were here last week, we talked about how that Jude has said, look, I wanted to write about our common salvation in Jesus. I wanted to encourage you in your faith. But you've got some people in your church who are misleading you. They're false teachers. If you'll go back to verse 4, you're, you're going to see that he points out who these false teachers are. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago, that means these are people who are not going to measure up to God's standard. They do not know Jesus Christ, but they're now teachers in the local church. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly. That lets us know they're not believers in Jesus Christ. They're ungodly, turning the grace of God into sensuality. We talked about last week how that they had subdivided their lives into thinking you can be a follower of Jesus, but live however you want because your spirit is saved on one side, so it doesn't matter how you live with your flesh. If you want to live in sexual immorality, go do it because your spirit is saved in Jesus. You live how you want. He says, that's not right. You pointed out last week, it's just not right. That's not how it is. And they're teaching you that and they're wrong. In addition, it says that they are turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our master and Lord. So those are the people that he's dealing with. And that brings us to verse 5. That sets the stage. So he says, now I want to remind you, although you came to know these things once and for all, that means the true gospel. And we talked about the true gospel last week. You came to know those things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. This begins this first triad and later destroyed those who did not believe. What was the problem with the false teachers? They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Now, do you remember when we go to the Old Testament again? This is triad number one. He's pulling three things together real quickly from the Old Testament. He says, do you remember when Moses led the people out of Egyptian slavery by the mighty hand of God and there were ten plagues and in the final plague, Pharaoh got the point and he said, get these people out of here. And so they left. They crossed through the Red Sea. God destroyed the Egyptian army. Then they go up to, they've been saved. They've, been, they've trusted God to get them out of Egypt and they got out of Egypt. And then when they got up to the promised land, 
God said, I want you to cross over and take this land because it's the land that I'm going to give you. And what happened there was that there were a group of people who said, no, we can't do it. There are giants in there. When they sent the spies in, there were 12 spies who went in. When they came back and gave the report, 10 said, we can't take it. Two, Joshua and Caleb said, we can. The 10 misled the entire nation of Israel, and they did not believe God could do, even though He had just brought them out of Egypt, they did not believe He could get them into the promised land. What happened to that generation? Because they didn't believe. They died. They lived under the judgment of God until they all died. Remember the judgment of God. This is part of it. Now, I want you to remind you that although you came to know these things once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. First illustration of God's judgment. Second one, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Not only do we have an example of unbelief, we've now got a people who have rejected God's authority. The angels who were in heaven, who had a place, who had a a work of service in the heavenly realms, they rejected their place and the authority of God and tried to take it over and take it away from Him. And so what did God do? He threw them out of heaven and He put them under His judgment. The people of God who didn't believe were under God's judgment. The angels who rejected God's authority were under God's judgment. Then number three is the next statement. Likewise, in verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns. We often kind of criticize Sodom and Gomorrah and the citizens who live there, but it says, and the surrounding towns. So there was even more involved than just Sodom and Gomorrah living in sexual immorality. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and served as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What did God do when you had a group of people who bought into sexual immorality? God judged them. If you go back to verse 4 and what Jude said about these false teachers, and then you tie it with what he says in a triad, three, three different ways, People who don't believe, people who don't understand the authority of God over their lives, and people who live in sexual immorality. What happens to all of them in the Old Testament? God's judgment. God's judgment. God's judgment. You see how it works? That's why we had to put those pieces together to help you see. He's referring to the Old Testament. He's given us a triad, one, two, three. And they all point to the judgment of God. What is he saying? The false teachers who are misleading you as a believer will be judged by God. Don't think they're going to get away with it. They will not. Then we move forward in the next section, and we've got another triad. The second triad that we find in this section. It begins in verse 8. In the same way these people, he's referring to the false teachers, relying on their dreams. That means they're not really trusting the Old Testament Word of God. They're communicating as the leaders, as the false leaders. Look, we've had dreams and God has revealed things to us in our dreams, and we want to tell you what God's telling us in our dreams. They're not not trusting in the Word of God from the Old Testament. They're talking about dreams that they are having so that they can overcome the people and mislead them and deceive them. So what does he say? He gives them three three examples right here. What are they doing? They defile the flesh, they reject authority, 
and they slander glorious ones. Do you know that there's a direct tie in what's said in verse 8 with what we've just read in the previous triad? Remember, unbelief. And then the second one was reject God's authority. And the third one was sexual immorality. Well, do you notice what these false teachers are described at? They're, They're described by Jude in this way. They defile their flesh, they reject authority, and they slander glorious ones. They they don't respect authority. So he's just told this previous triad to get us ready for what he's going to say about the false teachers. They are the people he's focused on here, and he's saying they're going to be judged for this. And then he gives us this illustration that's very fascinating beginning in verse 9 because he ends with slandering glorious ones. And verse 9 is where he's going to reference one of those extra-biblical sources. It's not in the Old Testament. We don't have a record of this. We just know it was one of those stories circulating about the time period of Moses and his death. Here's what it says in verse 9. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body. Have you ever read that in the Old Testament? You haven't. It's just not there. It's nowhere to be found. We know that Moses, before his death, was allowed to go up on a high mountain because he'd been told by God, you're not going into the promised land. So he went up on this high mountain and God allowed him to see the promised land. And then he died. But nobody really knows where his body was. It's, It's described that way in the Old Testament. We don't know where Moses died on that mountain as he's overlooking the promised land. And then we've got this story in Jude where it says that Michael, the archangel of God, and some of these angelic beings that have been thrown out of heaven argue over the body of Moses and where it's going to be buried. It's not found in the Old Testament. It comes from that extra-biblical source, which at that point had not been thrown out as legitimate, so he's quoting it. Now, why would, why would Michael and this demonic angel be arguing over Moses' body? Well, as the story goes, I've got a map to kind of show you where the projected idea is that Moses died on Mount Nebo. That's outside the promised land. Remember, they were going to cross the Jordan, and on the Jericho side is the promised land. In the Old Testament, cosmology and geography are huge. That means where somebody is geographically is always important. So if we take this story that Jude is giving us from an extra-biblical source, he's basically saying Michael came over to the non-promised land side and said, we're going to move Moses' body over to the promised land. And the angelic being said, no, you're not moving him. He's going to stay on the non-promised land side. So they're arguing over where Moses' body should be buried. Michael says it needs to be in the promised land because he's one of God's people. Remember, cosmology and geography are huge in the Old Testament, so we got to get his body over to the promised land. And this demonic angel says, no, he's going to stay right here. And they are having an argument over the Moses' body. Look at verse 9 again. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare an utter slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Basically, he says, Michael was so wise in the authority of God and how he put the system together when this demonic angel wanted to argue with him. He didn't chastise him. He didn't rebuke him and say, you can't say that. He just said, hey, I'm going to let God handle this. He'll take care of you. 
So Michael is the reverse of the false teachers. He understands the authority of God. He respects the authority of God. He even respects that God has created this other angelic being. And so he's not going to argue. He's not going to rebuke him. He's not going to point a finger at him. He just says, I'm going to let God handle this. And he walks away. All of this is to illustrate the false teachers. As it says, they defile their flesh. They reject authority. They slander glorious ones. This is why they will be judged. And then it says in verse 10, but these people, they blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do not understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things, they are destroyed. They can't get it straight and God's going to destroy them. And then he gets to the third triad. The third time he uses a one, two, three, and he goes back to the Old Testament again. Woe to them. Anytime woe is used, it's a sign of judgment's coming. Again, I'm just trying to tie together Old Testament, triads, and judgment. When he says, woe to them, he says, you're under God's judgment. Why? For they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's era for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Three of the most distinct Old Testament moments where God's judgment came were when Cain sinned against God by killing Abel, Balaam misled the people of God into sexual immorality, and Korah rejected the authority of Moses. You see what he's doing? He's just using three examples over and over, all the way through, to simply say one thing. God's going to judge false teachers. Now you might be thinking, okay, I got it. I got it. What does this matter in 2022? Why should this matter? Let me give you think, three things to think about. Do you know how to recognize apostate teachers and false leaders? I'm afraid that in our contemporary setting, we don't really disciple people well enough to recognize false teachers. And this is why, as we talked about last week, a moral gospel is very appealing. If you're just good, God's going to let you in heaven. Or a prosperity gospel, you should do things for God because He's going to bless you. Or a multi-God gospel is so popular. Jesus, yeah, you can worship Him, but He's just one of many gods. I think the reason many of us fall into the trap of believing those is because we are not grounded in our faith and we don't know how to recognize false teaching and false teachers. And so the reason we need to study a book like Jude is to be reminded from the beginning when Jesus ascended back to heaven until the current 2022, there have always been attempts to sabotage the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've got to have the knowledge in our minds of God's word to understand what false teaching looks like and who the false teachers are. Can you recognize apostate? teachers. Number two is this. Have you become apathetic to God's judgment? Have you become apathetic to God's judgment? Many of us in this room today, probably 90% of us are believers in Jesus Christ, but we do not think about the judgment of God that's coming. We just don't think about it. Oh, I'm safe. I've got mine worked out. So I'm good to go. i I don't have to worry about it. And there is some truth to that because, because of the Lamb's book of life, if your name is written in it, mine's written in it because I've trusted Jesus Christ. 
we're going to miss God's wrath, but does it burden us that other people we know in our circle, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, that they're facing the judgment of God. We've become so apathetic, we are not burdened to share the gospel with those who do not know because we're safe and we're not worried about anybody else. Jesus' half-brother Jude did not want these people to be misled and miss the gospel. He understood God's judgment was coming. And he wanted to make sure they did not miss it because they had trusted Jesus with their lives. Jude should awaken in us a burden for the lost, a burden for those who need to be rescued. It ought to burden within us those who are living in unrighteousness so that they can find the righteousness of Christ. We ought to be burdened that there are still people outside the faith, even though we are inside because we know Jesus. We should have a burden and not be apathetic because the judgment of God is coming soon. And then the final question I would give to you today is, do you know the answer to this problem of the judgment of God? It's Jesus. Like if you're here today and you, you've never trusted Jesus, I want you to hear me clearly. I'm not, I'm not shouting at you to say the judgment of God's about to get you. I'm just saying like I'm broken that you're going to miss knowing the Father through Jesus. I'm burdened to know that you're going to be under the wrath of God, not just the days that you live on this earth, but for all eternity. I'm burdened to tell you that the answer for the judgment that's coming is Jesus. Would you trust Jesus with your life today? Would you just simply surrender to Him? It's a simple process. Father, I'm, I'm a sinner, and my sin has separated me from You. And I recognize today, there's nothing I can do. When you open the books, it's going to be embarrassing because my works are never going to measure up. My righteousness is going to pale in comparison to your holiness. And I know I'm under your wrath. And so today I surrender to Jesus, the one that died for me. That's the answer. And for some of you here today, if you're not a believer in Jesus, this is what you need to hear the most is the gospel of Jesus. And this is why we study books like Jude it inspires us to continue to tell the world of the answer, and His name is Jesus. We're going to move into the invitation this morning, and um, it could be that you would like to give your life to Jesus. We would love for you to do that as we move into the invitation this morning. So let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll move forward. Heavenly Father, thank You for um, helping us today to study a book that's overlooked, but help us now to turn our attention toward what Your Spirit is doing in our life. And my prayer is that this morning, if there's just one single soul in this room, one single person who's going to stand before Your judgment seat, and that person's book's going to be opened up and Things that are read are not going to be pretty at all. My prayer is that today we've, we've communicated clearly who Jesus is. That everything is wrapped up in His death, burial, and resurrection. And we pray that Your Spirit would draw those individuals to faith in Jesus this morning before we leave this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.